Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. My name is Jody De La Pena Murphy, and I am the Director of Community Relations for the Stein Institute for Research on Aging. And tonight we have Jill Borman speaking to us tonight. She's a research scientist and a clinical nurse specialist in the adult psychiatric mental health uh, nursing department at the VA Medical Center. She's also an adjunct associate professor at the San Diego State University School of Nursing and a voluntary associate clinical professor here at UCSD School of Medicine um, in the Department of Family and Preventative Medicine. She has a keen interest in the relationship between spirituality and health, and she conducts research on the benefits of mantra repetition. Her research has been conducted with veterans with post-traumatic stress disorder, veterans with chronic illnesses, healthcare employees, adults with HIV, families and caregivers of veterans with dementia, and childbearing women in labor. Tonight, she's going to show us how mantra repetition can eliminate stress, so please join me in welcoming her. Thank you very much. It's very nice to be here this evening, and I'm sure that all of you out there have no stress in your lives at all. You're just here to learn about some new things, but not, not in, anyone of us are, is very stressed out. Isn't that right? For those of you um, that are watching this on video, we do have, I did have some handouts, and I might be referring to those, but I'll try to highlight most of the things I talk about on the slides. And what I'm going to do is talk about principles that support what I call mantram repetition and its relationship to the stress response. We're going to learn how to choose and use a mantram. So this is a very hands-on, practical lecture or discussion. I want to invite you to ask questions and discuss as well. But I'm hoping that by the time you leave here this evening, in the next 45 minutes, that each of you will have enough interest and maybe some healthy skepticism to think that, you know, what she's talking about is a bunch of baloney and I'm going to prove her wrong. But enough healthy skepticism that you might actually go out and try to use a mantra. I'm going to give you enough of the tools and enough information that you'll be able to go out and actually use this technique. So we're going to choose a mantra, use a mantra, and then I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the research that hopefully will help convince you that it's worth your while. So what is a mantra? Now, just out of curiosity, I'd like to see a show of hands of how many of you have heard the word mantra? Mantra, yeah. How many of you have heard the word mantram with the M on the end before? One person. Okay. Okay. Mantram with the M on the end. Well, the word mantram, and I use it for very particular reasons, and I want to start out by explaining it's not a typo. A lot of times people come up to me and they say, did you know they put a typo in the title of your presentation and they spelled it wrong? But it comes from the root word mantra, and that's a Sanskrit word. It means to cross the mind. Or if you think of your mind as a rushing river of thoughts and feelings and things going on, it, it crosses over, it rises above all of the chatter in the mind. And it also reflects teachings of a spiritual teacher called Eknath Eshwaran. He's from India. He came to California in the 60s on a Fulbright scholarship, and he taught meditation at Berkeley. He founded the Blue Mountain Center of Meditation and developed what he called an eight-point program, and that's where this work originates. So a mantra is a sacred or holy word or phrase, and it's to be repeated silently in the mind as often as possible throughout the day or night. Now, there's a lot of other guidelines and disciplines and ways of chanting or prayer or other types of mantra use, and they all probably have benefits. But what I'm going to talk about is a very specific type of mantra repetition that was really designed for the Western mind. So why do I use mantra and not mantra? Well, if you listen to the news or radio, and I, I think I hear this almost every day, you hear somebody say, well, my mantra is, 
lose weight, lose weight, lose weight. Or the other day I was listening to KPBS radio and they were talking about the budget crisis and they said, well, the new mantra is spend money, spend money. We got to get the economy going. Well, I don't know about you, but that would not be my choice of a mantra. Um, And so the word mantra in our culture today really refers to almost anything that you repeat. And oftentimes it's a secular type of word or type of phrase, and it's like something, it's more like an affirmation. You know, like, I want to be rich, I want to be rich, or something like that. That's how we use the word mantra. So I'm trying to make a distinction that that's not what I'm talking about here. And oftentimes people are familiar with transcendental meditation. How many of you heard of TM? Almost everyone in the room has heard of transcendental meditation. And that is really a mantra meditation. And for those of you who don't know much about TM, uh, you are actually assigned, you are given a mantra. And you're told not to say it out loud. And you're told to repeat it 20 minutes, twice a day, with your eyes closed, sitting quietly. And the idea between uh, about uh, transcendental meditation, the idea behind it is to rise above your thoughts, to transcend above your thoughts, so that you're really not aware of your thinking process. And that's not at all what we're after with mantra repetition. In fact, what we're after with mantra repetition is to raise your awareness of your thinking process and to try to put yourself in the driver's seat so that you can control and focus on what you want to as opposed to having your mind go wherever it likes. So just to give you an illustration, again, of the word mantra, I found a couple of paper, newspaper clips The first one says, I've learned to sit quietly and ask myself, is this particular moment okay? This can be a helpful mantra to use. Well, that's not a sacred phrase or a sacred word or a holy name. It's just a a phrase. Similarly, in the newspaper, Felicia Pride set out to extract motivational mantras from 100 hip-hop songs. Well, again, that's not the kind of mantra that I'm talking about. What I'm talking about reflects the practice of repeating words or phrases that is found throughout all different cultures and all spiritual backgrounds and traditions. And Herbert Benson, a cardiologist who coined the word the relaxation response, when he did a literature review, he found that almost all cultures and spiritual traditions have some ways of using words to quiet themselves, to focus and quiet and soothe and calm oneself, and oftentimes do that with words or phrases or prayers or chanting or something like that. So these are some examples of mantras, and I'm going to go through each one, and they really represent some of the major spiritual traditions. So Rama Rama, for example, Rama Rama is a word that means eternal joy within, and that was Mahatma Gandhi's mantra, my God and my all. You can tell that comes from Christianity. That's the St. Francis of Assisi's mantra. Allah Allah is more of a Muslim. Rabboni Shel Olam is from the Judaism. Om Mani Padmi Hum, that's from um, Buddhism. O Wankantaka comes from a Native American tribe. Shalom or Shanti are words that mean peace. And Soham, meaning I am that. Each of these are phrases that refer in some ways to either a higher power or an exalted state of the human being. And what uh, Herbert Benson found is that when he asked people to choose a word or phrase to focus upon, no matter, they could just choose anything they wanted, almost 80% chose some type of prayer. And he found that people who believed in their prayer or believed in their words, um, he identified that as a faith factor. So that if you believe that what you're doing or saying or believing in has some kind of power or the ability to evoke a certain state of mind, then it more likely will. And of course, people who believe that it's helping them are more likely to use it. So he called that the faith factor. On the other hand, a person needs not be religious, needs not be spiritual to benefit. In fact, when you choose your mantra, you don't even have to know what it means, although we'd like you to choose something that you aspire to become, for example, joyful or loving or peaceful. But even if you choose a word like Rama Rama, which is just a nonsensical bunch of syllables to me, I've never heard of that before, even that can be powerful and can be beneficial, even if you don't have any associations in English of what it means. 
So this eight-point spiritual program I mentioned earlier by Sri Eknath Eshwaran, he had eight points to his program. He had a form of what he called passage meditation, where you do sit quietly for 30 minutes every day and focus your mind on words of a spiritual passage. And then he talked about mantra and repetition, the concept of slowing down, meaning slowing down your thoughts, but also prioritizing the things you do in your life and, and putting forth your time and energy where you really want it to go. Developing one-pointed attention, which in, in our culture today, everybody's talking about mindfulness. How do you be mindful? Sense training, dealing with your likes and dislikes. Putting others first. It's kind of like the Good Samaritan, you know, love your neighbor. Spiritual reading and spiritual fellowship. So he founded this eight-point program, and if you're interested in more in-depth knowledge about that, you can go to the Blue Mountain Center of Meditation and learn more about that. But years ago in San Diego, we brought a portion of this program to people with HIV and AIDS, and we were trying to teach them meditation. Now, this was back in the early to mid-80s, and for those of you that were around at that time, you may recall that there were no antiretroviral drugs, people with HIV and AIDS were dying, nobody knew what it was. It was a very helpless, hopeless time for those individuals who had HIV. So we were trying to teach them passage meditation and a mantra, slowing down. And it was really amazing that during the time we took the class, they were doing the meditation, but then afterwards, if I ran across somebody in the street that I'd seen before and known before, and I'd say, hey, are you still meditating? Nine times out of ten, they'd sort of, you know, smile and look down at their feet and kind of feel embarrassed and say, no, I'm not meditating, but I still use my mantra. I still use my mantra. And they all kept saying that. Everybody was still using their mantra. So when I got a position at the VA and I was lucky enough to get a postdoc fellowship, I thought, well, if people aren't meditating but they are using the mantra, well, let's just teach the mantra. Let's just do what people are doing. Let's get real practical about this. So I began teaching a class that I sort of luckily called the relaxation response, the rapid relaxation class. Well, I called it rapid because mantras are easily available. They're in your mind. They're portable. I'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, But it actually evokes a relaxation response. And so I began teaching mantra repetition plus slowing down plus one-pointed attention. And then gradually began collecting pre- and post-evaluations and started looking at anxiety and anger and various things. And found that these three tools are very synergistic. They're very synergistic, and they work together very closely. And so that's why we call that the portable stress buster. A portable stress buster. And so there's a philosophy to this program Uh, that I'd like to go over. There's three basic assumptions. And again, coming from the scientific perspective, uh, there's certain things in science we can't prove. So when we can't prove them, we call them assumptions. So there's three assumptions to this program. And the first assumption is that human beings have a mind, a body, and a spirit. And with that spirit, we have inner spiritual resources. So what do I mean by that? Well, When I talk about inner spiritual resources, I'm talking about the kinds of characteristics that we as human beings uh, are capable of. So we're capable of peace and joy and love and compassion. We're capable of altruism and kindness and patience. And we believe that each of us possess those characteristics. The second assumption is that most of us are unaware or we don't know how to tap into those inner resources Because of our racing thoughts, our minds are going 100 miles an hour thinking about 100 million things, and we don't know how to quiet our minds. Sort of like this person. If you look up there and you read what she's thinking, flat tire? Should I have eaten that? What if I run out of money? What about the war? Is my baby crying? Will he ask me to marry him? Is a tornado coming? Are the bees really disappearing? And on and on and on, our minds are like a 24-hour thought factory with no supervisor. So the third assumption is that if we could learn to train our attention and quiet our minds, maybe we could tap in to these inner resources. 
And there's a couple quotes here that I like to share. All that we are is the result of what we have thought, comes from an ancient scripture. Or in more modern times, you are what your attention is. I think there's a lot of truth to that. And so we, I started this whole thing by talking about stress busting. And so I'd like to propose, and you may or may not agree with me, that there are probably two primary causes of modern stress. The first is we just have too much to do. There's too much information. We have things coming at us every day, more than we can ever, ever acknowledge. And the second reason is that there's too little time. Everything in our world is speeding up at a faster and faster rate. In fact, if you think about it, we've gone from buttons to zippers to Velcro, the stove to the pressure cooker to the microwave. We used to have to go to the washboard and the wringer washer. Now we just have a washer dryer. We all have computers. We have calculators. We have fax machines. We have Blackberries. Uh, everything has speeded up, and therefore we don't have pause time. So who has time to relax? It's really hard. We have to schedule it somehow. It's very difficult for us as human beings. You know, they said back in the 1950s that with all these time-saving devices that everyone would be on vacation, that we'd all be, you know, sitting on, you know, beautiful tropical islands and, and um, uh, drinking margaritas and relaxing. And instead, all we've done is crammed our lives full of more things. It's almost like we're insatiable, especially in the United States. Other countries, other industrialized countries, at least give their employees, like, month-off vacations, and we just don't do that. So I've listed here a number of things that you, some of you, may do to relax, but most of these do require a particular time, a particular place, and some particular equipment. And then, of course, there's those of us who say, I don't have time. I just don't have the time. Well, someone from the Systems Thinker, uh, which is a newsletter, calculated that we spend probably about six and a half years watching TV, six years eating. No wonder I'm always trying to lose weight. Five years waiting in line. Can you imagine? I think in California it's got to be more than that, don't you? Four years cleaning the house, three years in meetings, one year looking for lost keys. And I think that gets... Longer, the older you get? I don't know. Lately, I've been having a hard time. Eight months opening junk mail, six months sitting in red lights. Well, that's a lot of time kind of wasted. So the question here is, how can we train attention when we don't have any time? And that's exactly where this repeating a mantra comes in, because you can literally repeat a mantra while you're waiting in line. You can repeat a mantra while you're sitting at a stoplight. You can repeat a mantra when you're walking from your house to your car. You can repeat a mantra when you're putting on your seatbelt or if you're waiting for the bus. All these little snippets of time during the day or even at night if you wake up with insomnia, you could be repeating your mantra at every spare moment. And so I'd like to illustrate why this is important or how this could benefit you in learning to train your attention. So I'd like you to follow along with this slide. Let's just say you leave here tonight and you decide that Mahatma Gandhi's mantra, which is Rama Rama, is good enough for you. That if it was good enough for Gandhi, it's good enough for you. And you decide that you're going to start practicing. And so you leave here tonight and you start saying Rama 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 to yourself. And all of a sudden you think, oh, I forgot, it's my son's birthday next week. And then you say, oh, that's right, I've got to get groceries, we don't have any milk, and I want milk in my coffee tomorrow morning, oh dear. And then you, all of a sudden, at some point, you realize that you're not saying your mantra anymore. You're thinking about all these other things. And so there's this moment, this uh-oh or aha moment, where you recognize that you're not th saying your mantra. And at that point, you make a decision. Now, you can decide if you wanted to to think about what you're going to get your son for his birthday, or you could think about your grocery list. But if you decide to go back to the mantra, that red arrow is a very pivotal point, because at that point, you take charge. You focus your attention. You decide, no, I'm not going to let my mind wander. I'm going to bring my mind back to this mantra. And it's at that moment is an opportunity to train your attention. 
It's your opportunity to be in charge of what you're thinking. And so it's very tiny. You have to kind of think of it like lifting weights or like a training program. And this is not something that happens overnight. It's something that you take with you all the way till you die. We talk about using a mantra as a bridge at the time of death even. So it's something that you can start using now and carry it with you until your very last breath. So you think of it as practice, practice, practice. You want to build the muscle of your mind. So every time we lift a weight, we're building that muscle in our arm. And every time you bring your mind back to your mantra, you're building the muscle of your mind or your willpower. And that is a very important thing. You strengthen your attention. So repetition is the key, repeating it over and over. And then when you need it, because you've practiced it, when you really need it, you can cash in, sort of like putting money in the bank. And, of course, there's phases of practice. Now, the first phase is the mechanical phase. And that's sort of like the, oh, you've got to be kidding. You mean I'm going to leave here tonight and I'm going to say, Rama, 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 this is silly, this isn't going to work, Rama, 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 boy, this is, sort of sounds funny, hope nobody knows I'm doing this, Rama, Rama, Rama. And you kind of start recognizing that your mind is telling you that it's silly, but if you stick with it long enough, pretty soon you find that, that you, your mind kind of likes it, that it's kind of soothing. And then if you have an experience whereby you can use your mantra and it helps calm you, you move from the mechanical into the experiential, and you're kind of hooked. You're kind of hooked. And I've had so many people, especially vets with post-traumatic stress disorder, for example, who say they can't sleep at night. They have nightmares. They have flashbacks. And so they start using their mantra. And it gives them something to do. It gives them something to focus on. And if they use their mantra during the day when they're not stressed, and then they use it at night when they can go to sleep, they, they make a mind-body connection. So if you want to think of it more from a neurological point of view or a stimulus-response point of view, that's kind of how it works. And then over time, we hope that it becomes habitual. That for me, whenever I start walking from my parking lot at the VA, which is usually I'm parked way at the end and I've got a long way to walk to work, and oftentimes, as you all do, on your way to work or on a way to a meeting or an event, you start thinking about all these other things. And usually they're things you can't do anything about at that moment, right? So as I'm walking, I start saying my mantra as a way to kind of clear my mind and help me then focus on what I need to do at work. So the way that this really can, can be explained, I guess, is that you practice your mantra in non-stressful times when you don't need it. So you practice it before you sleep, when you take a hot shower, or if you watch a sunset. And then during stressful times, you can repeat it to refocus your attention so that if you've practiced long enough, it can come to your aid when you start to have a lot of fear or if you're ruminating about something that you can't control or if you have pain, for example. Then when you say your mantra, it can kind of help deal with those emotional feelings. So we call it a pause button. The mantra is a pause button for the mind. I like to call it a jacuzzi for the mind. It's a place to go to relax. Or for those of us that are younger, we say the, the mantra is a screensaver for the mind. You know those of you that have computers and the screensaver pops up when you're not using it? Well, there's a lot of times when we don't really need to use our brain for constructive, calculating, problem-solving, thinking, engaging. There's a lot of time when our minds are just roaming around. A lot of times we're dwelling on the past or we're worried about the future. Only about 5% of us are really living in the present. And that's one of the reasons that the mantra is so effective, is it brings you right into the present moment. Now, I can tell you that, but only you can experience that by practicing. So you go from automatic pilot, you start saying your mantra, and you become more aware. When you're in a hurry, you start saying your mantra, and you realize you can slow down and become more intentional, more deliberate. If you're feeling a lot of time pressure, or you find yourself worrying in the past, you can use your mantra to help you bring into the present and be more one-focused. And if you worry about the future, again, it helps bring you into the present. So the outcomes of practice are really ultimately to get you into a relaxed state. And it might be ever so brief. It might be only a few seconds. 
But in our day and age, a few seconds can seem like an hour when you think about how much we have going on in our lives. And we create a mind-body connection. We quiet the mind, which can calm the body and help us get in touch with those highest ideals, things like patience and goodness and peacefulness. So I want to share some quotes. I said that I would uh, talk a little bit about research. And we do both quantitative, which is questionnaires and self-report, and objective tests, and we also do qualitative, which is interviews, where we interview people who have used the mantra and ask them, how did you use it? You know, what has the mantra done for you? Is it working? Is it not working? So I want to just share some quotes, and these are all taken from our research studies. Often these quotes come about three months after people have learned a mantra in, in a, like a formal class, like an eight-week class. So here's an example of a healthcare employee. I recently lost my father to cancer, and I have found it, meaning mantra repetition, very helpful in coping with his death. Another healthcare employee said, it's mostly helpful when I'm driving and when I get upset or irritated. It makes me stop, and I've never found it not helpful. A veteran with chronic illness said, the mantra helps me slow down, helps me think and reason because it allows me to focus. And without that focus, I might be thinking three to four things at the same time. And uh, a fellow with HIV, he said, I was having trouble with nightmares, and those dreams were terrifying. I would wake up shaking, and my hands would be clenching to my chest, stopping the blood circulation to my hands. And since I took the second week of class, the mantra started taking over. And as of today, I no longer have those scary nightmares anymore. And uh, again, how many of you wait in line? <laughs> how many of you waited in line today, for example? Okay, we all, we all tend to wait in line. So here's one. When I'm really frustrated or in a line or something, I don't let that bother me. I just say my mantra. And before you know it, I'm right up at the front of the line. It has really worked for me. I liked it. I really, really liked it. And that's another example of someone living with HIV. In our research study with post-traumatic stress, um, I have a veteran here that said, I'm glad I learned the mantra. I don't stay mad. I am not angry. I'm not all stressed out. So I try and I use the mantra the best I can to relieve the pressure, you know, because we're like steam, you know, once you turn the fire up. You've got to get rid of it, you know, and the mantra really works well. Another fellow with PTSD said, if I find myself getting into a bad mood or depressed, how can I say it? When I have no patience with myself and I find myself going back and I beat myself up over issues or whatever, I have to, I do my mantra at that point in time and I get more relaxed or I can start thinking other thoughts. So you can see where it raises his awareness. He's, he finds himself in a bad mood or feeling depressed and can interrupt those thoughts with a mantra and then refocus and think of something else. Um, I also wanted to share our family caregiver study. In fact, um, one of our teachers, uh, Katie Warren, is here, and she has been working with adults and caregivers of veterans with dementia, with Alzheimer's. And I don't know how many of you are caring for loved ones, but being a caregiver is a very draining thing, and it often is very um, damaging to one's health. And so what we tried to do is teach mantra repetition along with some cognitive behavioral skills to caregivers of veterans with dementia. And we actually ran a study. We had about 16 participants. And because they couldn't leave their loved ones at, at home, we met with them in person the first week, and then we called them on the telephone and taught them the mantra over the phone. And each week we had these telephone conference calls. So that kind of worked out pretty well. So I want to read a couple of, of quotes from some of our caregivers that use the mantra while caring for loved ones. And these were um, questions we asked up to 36 weeks after the intervention. And so these are just some examples. When do, when do you use the mantra? And they said, well, when I'm irritated with my husband's behavior, when I need to find misplaced objects, when my husband doesn't hear me, when I'm feeling a little depressed because I know he's not the same man. I use it when I'm getting impatient or I have to wait. Or I use it when my husband asks me the same thing over and over and over and gets interrupted. 
And then the last study that we've done, we had a student at San Diego State, and they wanted to, they were a nurse midwife, and they wanted to study women in labor. And so we did have um, some, some mothers that were having babies, and we asked them if they could use their mantram. And m- most of them said they used the mantram that allowed them to do something when they didn't know what was going on during the labor process. And they often used it for reducing pain intensity. The mantram was viewed as a mechanism to cope or lessen the amount of pain in labor. Mothers reported that they refocused their attention away from their physical sensations and onto the mantram, which helped them clear their minds so they were less consumed by experiences of pain, fear, stress, and anxiety, and so forth. So we're continuing to try to gather evidence to see, and also to see which populations does it work better for. And it's interesting. We're finding different outcomes in different groups. So let's get down to the nitty-gritty. Our time is running out, and I want to make sure there's time for questions. So I want to talk to you about how to choose a mantra. Now, again, these are just guidelines, and you're the one that has to test it for yourself. I'm hoping that you will. But what we recommend is to choose a traditional mantra. We recommend that you choose something that's already been handed down for generations to generations. It's been the it's had the test of time. We encourage you not to make up your own. Now, why do we say that? Why do we say not to make up your own? Well, most of these words and phrases have come from ancient wise men or sages or holy people, um, really enlightened beings. And so there's something special about those words. And most of us don't claim to have that stature. So we encourage you to use something that's been handed down And then once you choose it, you might try on a few for a while, but once you choose it, stick with it and don't change it. Keep the same one. And then sometimes you might find that a mantra will choose you. Now, what does that mean? Well, we've had people that have looked at the list, and they look down, and they see a word or phrase, and they think, okay, like my friend Jim. He decided to pick Om Mani Padme Hum, which is a Buddhist mantra. And he said, Om Mani Padme Hum, Om Mani Padme Hum. And he used it for about a week. And then he thought, you know, I don't like that one anymore. I think I'm going to pick a different one. That's too long. So he switched. But every time he tried to say his mantra, to switch to Rama, 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 which was shorter, he found that his mind went to Om Mani Padme Hum. And so he felt that that mantra chose him. And for those of you that already have a relationship with God, or you pray, or you have some other associations that are positive in your life, then you might want to choose one of those. And we often say as sort of a default that, you know, if you have difficulty choosing, use Rama Rama, which again was Mahatma Gandhi's. That's your choice. You need not be religious or spiritual. And what's really surprising to most people is you really need not understand the meaning of the words to have an effect. Now, we are Westerners. We love words. We put words on our hats and words on our T-shirts and words on our license plates, and we just have words everywhere. And so for us to think that we don't understand the meaning is a little hard to swallow. And sometimes people get so caught up in the meaning that they aren't really saying their mantra. They're thinking of the word. I mean, they're saying the word, but they're thinking of the meaning, and that's splitting attention. So how to use a mantra then? You choose a mantra, then you repeat it silently. Now, other traditions might say to chant it out loud or sing it in the shower or, you know, I mean, as, as sometimes it's okay to say it out loud if you need to, if your mind is so turned out. But basically, repeat it silently and then ignore other thoughts that might compete. And then what makes it different from most other strategies is that you want to repeat it as often as possible throughout the day. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to repeat it for so many times. We don't keep track. We don't count. You know, like a rosary, you keep track with beads, or japa beads, you keep track. Um, Eshwarn teaches that you shouldn't be tying the mantra to any particular external source, that rather it should be internal and it should repeat itself. So you repeat it, you might say it a few times, you might say it 50 times. There's no rules about how often or how, how much you say it. You just need to use it. And then Sort of the, the thing about when you say, well, when should I use it? Well, you use it when you need to, but also use it when you don't. So pretty much use it all the time. And what makes it portable? I guess this is my favorite part. This is one of the reasons I am so delighted, really seriously, to be here tonight and share this with you. 
And for many of you, I'm sure you're thinking, well, this isn't all that new, and it really isn't. This isn't any really groundbreaking thing. It's been around for centuries. In fact, it's not something that we created. It's something that we as human beings discover. And I wouldn't be surprised if every one of you in this room haven't discovered at some point in time a word, a phrase, a prayer, or something that you've said to yourself that is soothing. It's a very powerful tool, and most of us discover that. But what makes it portable is, number one, it's invisible. It's in your head. You can use it wherever you go. Nobody knows you're doing it. Number two, it's inexpensive. Relatively cheap tonight, you know, and plus you got a little free food to go along with it. But you can pick your mantra and begin using it, and off you go. So it's inexpensive. It's immediately available to you if it's in your mind and you remember it. Now, that's the hard part. Not everybody remembers to use it. That's why you got to practice so it becomes habitual. It can be used anytime, any place, and even during some activity. Sometimes if you're doing repetitious tasks, like you know, you're mowing the lawn or sweeping, doing chores, making the bed, folding clothes, you might want to use your mantra during those times. It's complementary. It's non-pharmacological. It's easy to learn. It's non-toxic. There are no known side effects. And so I want to, before I go into some of the research data, I just want to tell a story um, about the elephant. And if you see most elephants, especially if you're in the circus, you see that oftentimes an elephant has a trunk that's wandering around. And if you had of an elephant and you think of the trunk as your mind, that it's your thoughts. And so most of us go through life and our thoughts, our mind, if it's like an elephant's trunk, is going to walk through the market of life, and start grabbing for apples and grabbing for bananas and grabbing for this and grabbing for that and kind of getting in trouble. And so what do you see in the circus or what do you see in the zoo? You see that usually the, t- the owner will give the elephant a stick or a branch or something to hang onto in its trunk. And then when the elephant goes down the market of life and it sees the bananas and the apples and the peaches and the whatever, its trunk is full and it can't pick them up. So think of the mantra as a stick for the mind, something to wrap your mind around to keep you out of trouble, to keep you out of thinking addictive thoughts or ruminating destructive thoughts or beating yourself up or negative thoughts. Use your mantra as a means to wrap your mind around something positive. So just a few things, and I want to make sure we have time. In fact, I'll probably run through these rather quickly. But just a few slides to show you some of the research that's been done. And these are two randomized, or actually I think it's maybe one, randomized controlled trial, which is considered some of the highest evidence or the best research that you can do. And this was a a group in Florida who divided people into three, or it's a group of scientists who divided their subjects into three groups. And they gave them a real mantra, a placebo mantra, and then a control group that didn't get any mantra. And then they told them to practice their mantras three rounds daily, which is 108 times. So three times 108. And to practice every day for a month. And they measured them on stress and depression. Now, when you ask yourself, well, what kind of mantra are they talking about? Well, they're talking about the Hare Krishna mantra. So they gave people the Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Hare Hare, Krishna Krishna. That's a Sanskrit mantra. And then they made up a placebo mantra. So they took Sanskrit words and they jumbled them. And they made them sound like the same rhythm, sarvadasa, sarvadasa, sarva, sarvadasa, dasa, and they gave them that to repeat. And then the last group got no treatment at all. And what they found is both the mantra groups improved more than the control group, but the real mantra group improved significantly more in reducing stress, reducing depression, and um, lowering their inertia, or sort of like inability to move. And at one month, the improvement continued in the real mantra group. Now, again, there were limitations to the study. Maybe some of the people had heard this Hare Krishna mantra before, and so they had associations. I mean, there's a lot of limitations to these studies. But it's very interesting. Another person did a study looking at spiritual versus secular meditation in people with migraine headaches. And she divided people into four groups and asked them to meditate 20 minutes a day for a month and measured them on migraine headaches. And the four groups were either spiritual, what she called spiritual phrases, that had the word God in there, God is peace, joy, good, love, 
internal, I am content, I am joyful, I am good, or external secular, which is grass is green, sand is soft, cotton is fluffy. Can you imagine sitting for 20 minutes thinking cotton is fluffy? I hope I didn't get in that group. And then the last group did passive muscle relaxation. But everybody did. They, they got to pick one of the four, but they were each divided into these groups. And interestingly, what they found is the spiritual group had the greatest improvements in tolerating pain and in decreasing their headaches. Similarly, the spiritual group did much, much better in how long they could hold their hands in ice-cold water. That was the test. It was the cold presser test. And with anxiety, you can see that the red line is the spiritual group that decreased the most. And then I mentioned the teleconference study that we did, um, and I don't know if Katie has even seen these slides yet, but from our um, caregiver study where we had face-to-face meetings at three times and then we had conference calls and individual calls, and basically our findings were that at baseline, the caregiver burden scale was at about a 23, and eight weeks later, dropped to 17, and 16 weeks later, it was down even, or 17, I'm sorry, and then down to 16. And, and this was the same for perceived stress, depression, and rumination. So in other words, the people that use their mantra and use this cognitive behavioral therapy improved. And they also increased their quality of life and uh, enjoyment and satisfaction, baseline week 8, week 16. So don't believe everything you think. Can't always trust the mind. Um, But try it for yourself. I really encourage you to. So I'd be happy to stop now and take questions. Um, Because we're being taped, I'll repeat your question. But don't be shy. I'm more than happy to try to entertain any questions anybody might have. Yes? How varied were the groups uh, culturally that were assessed for these uh, outcomes? For the various studies? Right. Well, the headache study was conducted at Duke University. And I think the majority of people were probably Caucasian. They were students on campus, and they were staff members that had migraine headaches. They had to meet a certain scale. So I think that they were probably predominantly middle class, white, American, probably mostly Christian groups. That's a very good question. The people that were in the other study in Florida, they were um, community adults, and they were recruited by flyers in various places, like you know, laundromats and things like that. And the way they advertised for that study is they said, do you want to learn some Eastern technique for managing stress? So I don't know if I repeated the question. The question was, what were the ethnicities or the racial breakdowns of the groups in these last two studies? Um, I can also say that in the other studies that we've done with veterans with post-traumatic stress and... Um, the adults with HIV, we had a larger number of Afro-American participants um, and some Hispanic and Asian. So, yeah, there's, a, there's some differences in the studies, and that's a very good point, you know, that this may not be something for every group. Yeah, question. What about children? Um, what age would you start, 18, 21, or would you go? Um, I've heard wonderful stories, yeah, that you can start teaching you, you can be a mother with a baby in your womb and start using your mantra. What's the question again? Oh, that's right. The question was, can you teach this to children? And how young should they be? Should they be 18 years and older or whatever? And I'm saying that probably you can teach children as, as young as until they can speak. I know there's been some studies that have talked about, and I know that in India, um, oftentimes mothers that are pregnant will sing their mantras or say their mantras to their baby in the womb, and then when the baby's born, they'll give them that same mantra. So that's been done. I also know some great stories about second graders. There was a second grade teacher. She gave all of her kids a magic word. Said, say your magic word. You know, we're going to stand in line now. And they all loved it, you know. And so they all stood there. And here she had all these second graders all lined up waiting for lunch. And the other teachers came over and said, what are you doing with your kids? My goodness, how do you get them to, you know, and it, they were teaching a mantra. So I think you can do it at any age, really. Yeah, there was another question. Wouldn't uh, would pre- and post-blood pressure uh, evaluations be a good way to <laughs> quantitatively measure the, the results? Mm-hmm. He asked the question, wouldn't uh, blood pressures, 
pre- and post-blood pressures be a good way to quantitatively look at the results. We did do blood pressures in our HIV study and found that it was significantly different over a long period of time. And all of Herbert Benson's early work has looked at blood pressures, and Transcendental Meditation has looked at blood pressures. So absolutely. In fact, if you talk to most of our vets who take Montram, I get these stories all the time, maybe Katie does too, where they say, well, you know, I'm going to go in and have my blood pressure, and they go to take it, and they say, wait a minute, I've got to say my Montram. So they sit there and they say their Montram, and then their blood pressure drops. So there's a lot of evidence to show that the relaxation response can be elicited. You know, certainly even if you just sat quietly and breathed deeply, you could probably elicit a lower blood pressure. Yeah. Does it help or hurt uh, obsessive-compulsive? Okay, the question is, does it help or hurt obsessive-compulsives? Well, I would consider myself one of those. Um, and it's interesting. We have not done any studies, although I often get people that ask me if it would work for people with attention deficit disorder, for example, or bipolar disorder or things like that. Um, I can't see where repeating a mantra, if you even obsessed on it, that that would be a bad thing. But I don't really know. I don't know the answer to that question. I do think that the idea of practicing bringing your mind back to a certain focal point, that that, I really believe that that strengthens your ability to focus, and that if you are obsessively you know, thinking of something or compulsively, obsessively ruminating, um, I think mantra can interrupt that. And then you can refocus. But I don't really know scientifically if that's true. Yes? The question was, in all my work and experience with different people choosing mantras and using mantras, have I found that there are a particular, that people have a particular affinity for any particular words or sounds? And I would have to say that it's really individual. And um, there are some, you know, I think that we approach our mantras the way we approach life. In other words, if you're someone who's very scientific and analytical and you've got to figure it all out, those are the people that sometimes have the hardest time choosing because they want some kind of, you know, they want some logical method to do it. On the other hand, we have this one vet who uh, was interviewed, actually, on KPBS radio, and, and they, asked, they asked him, well, what's your mantra and why did you choose it? And he said he shows Om Shanti Rama. And he said, I'm not religious. I don't know why. I just like the sound of it. So I think it's a wide gamut in terms of affinity or liking. There are some people who are allergic to religion. They've had bad experiences with religion. And they see certain words or phrases that evoke a negative feeling. And so in those cases, we certainly encourage people not to choose something that's negative or something that has an association where they're going to be splitting their attention, you know, where you're saying, um, you know, Ava Maria, and then you're thinking of Christmas music. You know, that's splitting your attention, so that might not be a great mantra for you. You had your hand up, too. Yeah, I have two questions. Are mantras being taught in prisons? Okay, she has two questions. The first is, are mantras being taught in prisons? I don't know. I really don't know if anybody's doing that or not. Okay, so her question was also, because she's, you're interested in music and you, the idea of singing and being with a group, that would it be more powerful, perhaps, or get more benefit, would you say, if you were with a group and either singing your mantra or saying your mantra out loud? Is that your question? As a group. Yeah, as a group. As a group. In other words, we'd be benefiting each other. Yeah. Well, let me ask, answer that question by just sharing a little bit about the Blue Mountain Center of Meditation because I've gone to retreats up there. And what we do... Oh, you have? Okay. And so what we do at the Blue Mountain Center of Meditation is we go for a mantra walk. And everybody's out walking, and you're all doing your mantra, and you all know you're doing your mantra. Or you write the mantra. And we sit quietly in groups and write the mantra. And I find that to be a powerful thing. But I'm not sure with the music... uh, Again, that's a little bit different. And Eshwarn, in his books about mantra, he, he encourages us to... Not necessarily make it a hard rule that you can't sing your mantra, but that you want it to be completely portable. And so if it's quiet and in your mind, then it's completely portable. But if you like singing and you want to sing it, I don't see any reason why not to. I don't know whether it adds or subtracts in a group, though. I can't really answer that. Yeah. One more question, and then I think, are we, how are we doing on time? We're okay? Okay, just behind you and then you in the green shirt. Not to my knowledge right now, um, 
I know there's a lot of studies on self-hypnosis, and um, there's a lot of studies in all different types of meditation. Um, in our work, we are just now beginning this mantra repetition and kind of trying to tease it out to have it be, you know, just this one modality. So we haven't begun comparing it to other strategies. And then you had a question. Well, that's true. The question he asked was, how, where does the physical factors come into play? So, for example, in the childbirth study, every woman that goes through labor and childbirth is going to have a different experience of pain or a different experience. Am I getting the question correct? And we're not measuring that. And that's absolutely true. We're at a level with this research that we're at the very early stages of it, and we haven't really measured it. Now, what I could say about the pain study and the migraine study, they did have people put their arms in ice-cold water and count how many seconds they could do it. And that's about as objective as they could get. It's true, every person's going to experience pain differently. But when you start lumping together, you try to get a group of people and research to that you know, will balance the outliers and sort of get a mean or an average. So... You know, I don't know if I have a very good answer to your question, but you know, we're, we're at the early stages of some of that, and we haven't used a lot of objective measures in that way. And certainly with the childbirth study, we had very few women in that study. It was a, very, it was a master's thesis, and we had trouble recruiting, and they were in the military, and they were moving and being deployed, and on and on and on. I can give you all kinds of examples about that. Yes? The question is... Uh, she's read that different mantras have a vibrational sound, the words and the vowels and the phrases, that they resonate or they have a vibration, and that that vibration has an effect on the body. And I've read a lot of that, too. Um, they talk about chakras, different chakras, and the different sounds and the different levels. And I think there's some, some um, validity to that, but it's not anything, again, that we have the tools to measure with our research. And so it's not an area that I've looked into very much. Um, and there's a lot of other traditions that do teach mantra in that way, that it's all vibrational and that you have a different mantra for different things. Uh, so I think it's a really good point and a really good question. Um, I, in our work, we haven't really looked at that. We haven't looked at that. Okay, well, I want to thank everyone. Uh, and I... I do welcome those skeptics of you out there to, you know, just prove me wrong. Try it out for yourself. And uh, on the handouts, there's some uh, websites and other information if you're interested. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.